I'm Jamila Rizvi and welcome to The Briefing, where we get you up to speed every morning with the news you need to know this Friday, 28 August. Jan Fran is here. Good morning, Jam. Yes, I am. And today we're taking a look at the massive toll that this pandemic is taking on Victoria's healthcare workers. I didn't sign up to get sick. I signed up to, you know, help people and, you know, do my job. I didn't sign up to be a hero. I didn't sign up to make some sort of ultimate sacrifice. Yeah, we're going to hear from nurse Emily Morris in just a second. And we're asking the question, are we doing enough to protect our doctors, our nurses and our healthcare workers while they're on the job? Before we get to that, though, the big stories of the day. The Australian terrorist who killed 51 worshippers from two Christchurch mosques will spend the rest of his life in prison. He will never be eligible for parole. What you just heard there were the sounds of a crowd cheering outside at the Christchurch High Court after Justice Cameron Manda made history handing down New Zealand's toughest sentence ever. No minimum period of imprisonment would be sufficient to satisfy the legitimate need to hold you to account for the harm you have done to the community, nor do I consider that any minimum term of imprisonment would be sufficient to denounce your crimes. Justice Manda read out the names of every victim from New Zealand's worst peacetime massacre. He described the 29-year-old murderer as a wicked, highly dangerous criminal with no regard for human life. Prime Minister Jacinda Ardern had said that Victims had the arms of New Zealand around them throughout the harrowing court process. She also had a message for the terrorist. Today, I hope, is the last where we have any cause to hear or utter the name of the terrorist behind it. His deserves to be a lifetime of complete and utter silence. Imam Gamal Fuda was giving the service at Christchurch's Al-Nur Mosque when the attack happened in March last year, Gamal Fuda spoke outside the court. We are very proud that we are Muslims in New Zealand and will continue to serve this country and no punishment again is going to bring our loved ones back. Yeah, NZ's Deputy PM, Winston Peters, says that he wants uh, the man deported to Australia to serve his sentence. The gunman is currently costing 15 times more than the average prisoner to house in New Zealand because of some of the protections that he requires. However, no formal application has been made yet. It's part of an ongoing dispute, actually, between Australia and New Zealand about Australia not wanting to take back its citizens who've lived their life in New Zealand and committed a crime. And obviously this particular case is sharpening the focus on that disagreement. There are further strains on our already frayed relationship with China, this time over new national security laws. The proposed Foreign Relations Bill would give Canberra the power to tear up agreements made by state and local governments and universities if they are not in the national interest. Right now, there are more than 130 such agreements in Australia. The most high profile is the infamous Belt and Road Agreement between China and the Victorian government to build future infrastructure. Protecting and promoting Australia's national interest is the primary job of the federal government. That's PM Scott Morrison there. And yesterday, the Labor opposition confirmed they're going to support the bill when it goes before Parliament next week. Yeah, now Beijing has accused the Australian government of 
quote unquote, putting bacteria in that relationship. While Victoria's Premier, Dan Andrews, he's been pretty blunt about his feelings on this one. If the Prime Minister's got the, got the time to be focused on these matters, that's fine. That's entirely a matter for him. I, I don't. It's National Equal Pay Day today. Huzzah! And women in Australia continue to earn 14% less on average over a lifetime than what men do. That is around $253 a week less. Jam. And Kate Lee from the Workplace Gender Equality Agency says the pandemic is only going to broaden that gap. Women have really borne the brunt of the job losses out of COVID just because of the industries and jobs that they work in. So it's a little bit too early to see what that means for the gender pay gap over the medium term. But we know that in terms of women's position in the workforce, they have really had a difficult time. Yeah, just last week, we saw that the Australian Bureau of Stats revealed figures that showed Victorian women lost jobs at more than four times the rate of men in July during this second wave in the state. And it's a complex one, isn't it, Jan? Because we also know women make up the majority of essential workers. So the majority of workers we absolutely need to keep in their jobs right now. It's just that they're also the ones that are dropping out, being sacrificed, going back to homeschool, being made redundant in other industries too. Australia's chief nursing officer has revealed the devastating impact Australia's second coronavirus wave has had on aged care staff. More than 20,000 shifts have been filled and assisted through a whole range of strategies to help backfill staff who were either tested positive or required to quarantine as due to a close contact. That was Professor Alison McMillan there. More than half of all Aussie healthcare workers in Victoria infected with COVID-19 are working in aged care. And today, Victoria may reach the very grim milestone of 500 lives lost. Currently, 485 people have died and 343 of them were in aged care. And Jan, we're going to take a closer look at this very issue in just a moment when we'll be talking to a medical researcher who's spoken to hundreds of angry and sick healthcare workers infected with COVID-19 and one of those nurses. Now we've got this cohort of people that are fatigued. They're expected to go back to work, but nobody's quite knowing what to do with them in terms of supporting them. And then basically being expected to go back into an environment which you most likely got that virus, that thing that had impacted you in the first place. That's the message from Victorian healthcare workers, nurses, doctors and allied health professionals whose colleagues are ending up in intensive care because of what they say is inadequate infection control. Yeah, so on average, 33 Victorian healthcare workers are infected with COVID-19 every single day. Since the pandemic began, around 2,700 workers have tested positive. More than 100 have been hospitalised and sadly, there's been one death. That's right. And the vast majority, more than 70%, are catching it at work. They're catching it at the nursing home, they're catching it in the emergency department. And it's a figure far higher than what we initially thought. So what is going on? Are we doing enough to protect our healthcare workers while they're on the job? And how can we expect them to look after us when we can't first keep them safe at work? Emily Morris is an emergency department nurse at the Royal Melbourne Hospital, where she works with COVID patients every day. Last month, Emily contracted COVID-19. Emily, thanks so much for chatting with us 
this morning. Tell us what contracting the virus was like for you. It was really scary. Firstly, it was a surprise. Like a lot of people, I think that I my symptoms, I had just some aching in my legs, nothing super overt, um, but got the swab anyway, being a responsible citizen, especially like as a nurse trying to do the right thing. And yeah, I tested positive, which for one, super surprise. Then I felt really, really embarrassed because I was like, shit, I'm a nurse. Like, have I not been doing the infection prevention thing properly? Like, where have I broken the the chain of infection prevention to allow myself to be effect, infected by this, which is ridiculous because it's not my fault that I got infected with something. Mm. Um, my responsibility is what I do moving forward with that. Um, physically, then I went on this amazing journey of like being the sickest that I've ever been in my life. Um, so I had two days in which I was mildly unwell. I thought, okay, I'm young. I've managed to like pull that card, play that card, and I'm not going to be too unwell. Um, And then all of a sudden it just hit me like a ton of bricks Mm. and I was absolutely white. Um, Couldn't eat, was uh, like walking around my apartment that I'd been put up in by the state government, couldn't really walk around the room um, without feeling really, really short of breath, just really aware of my breathing, terrible headache, absolutely awful. And I'm still like recovering from that now. Uh, I've got ongoing um, post-viral fatigue and it sounds really lame, but it's actually been quite debilitating. So I've returned to work. Um, I'm a young, fit, healthy person, but I will work a shift in in emergency. I also work in the community. So I've been working in some other aged care facilities, helping optimise their response and I will come home and I'll sleep for a few hours. I'll get up and eat, then I'll go back to get to bed again. It's almost like a chronic fatigue picture, which has been something that's super common in a lot of my friends Mm. um, and colleagues that have had uh, COVID and that this um, post-viral fatigue, the debilitating post-viral fatigue has been a a real challenge um, Mm. dealing with that um, returning to work. What's the mood like in the hospitals themselves? Because most of us think about hospitals as somewhere where we go when we're sick, but for you and your colleagues, healthcare settings, it's, you know, that's your workplace too. And you want to be enjoying yourself to at least some extent at work. Is there anger? Like, are people frustrated by what's going on? Yes. <laughs> I think that everybody, I mean, I, obviously this is about like my personal experience as well, but, you know, there, those tea room conversations and stuff, I think people are really, really frustrated. Like there's this element of moral fatigue going on in which, you know, you see things saturated in the media and people like, you know, questioning whether COVID is real. And it's hard not to have that sense of anger and be like, come on, guys, like we're here, we're working so hard. We're actually more physically vulnerable. I didn't sign up to get sick. I signed up to, you know, help people and, and you know, do my job. I didn't sign up to be a hero. I didn't sign up to make some sort of ultimate sacrifice like I was in the army. And it's hard when people are behaving in a community like that's just this expectation that you should have of healthcare workers. Um, And so this dismissiveness when it comes to things like um, social distancing and the wearing of masks and like, again, the politicising of these public health messages, I'm at the state, I'm I'm pissed off. I'm really frustrated. And I think that I speak on behalf of a lot of my colleagues when they, when I speak of that frustration and, and I guess, yeah, moral fatigue about it all. Did you feel supported by your bosses and your workplace? My boss was in isolation when I was in isolation. So on a human level, I, I did. I don't want to like bad mouth anybody. Mm. Um, 
I didn't expect support because I kind of knew that it wouldn't be there. There would be some elements of it, but everything is so overstretched at the moment. Like I can't describe like people are chasing their tails. Absolutely. So when I got sick, like, yeah, I had a few phone calls and stuff and that was great. But like my first, I had to ask not to come back to work on night duty. I came back and I worked 10 out of 11 days. Um, and I was absolutely exhausted. Um, I don't have sick leave, so I, I can't take sick leave. So I've only just started working again back in emergency in Melbourne um, yeah. since the beginning of the pandemic. I hope that you guys get a f- parade when this is all done. Yeah. I kind of hope that that doesn't happen in a way because, like, I hate this, like, fetishization of, like, healthcare workers that you should be making a sacrifice. It really pisses me off. <laughs> I'm like, I'm just doing my job. So you guys do your job mm. in the community and then I wouldn't have to be working so hard and sweating so schwitzing so much all day if people just stopped <laughs> passion in Princess Park. Yeah. <laughs> mm. That was emergency department nurse Emily Morris in Melbourne there with a story that unfortunately is not unique. Dr Michelle Ananda Raja is a consulting physician in infectious diseases and she's spoken to more than 400 Victorian health workers about their experiences of COVID-19. And what they have to say is pretty damning. Probably the most important is that healthcare workers around the country feel that their organisations have a pretty casual approach to occupational health and safety. So they feel that really too many shortcuts have been taken from the very beginning of this pandemic. And it started really with um, guidelines that were not fit for purpose, that really did not take into account the um, lethality of this infection and some of the unknowns around its transmission. And so as a result, healthcare workers really... You could say almost that we never stood a chance. We were given a surgical mask to protect ourselves against um, COVID-19 when a surgical mask was woefully inadequate. It's not actually approved as um, respiratory protection for at all. Uh, it's designed to prevent um, splash or splatter from the surgical field onto the face of the surgeon. So that was the first problem. And then really it was a cascading set of other issues that um, have led to this, you know, staggering numbers in the thousands, over two and a half thousand, nearly 2,700 infections in Victoria alone. The other things that emerged, of course, were the issues around PPE. So a lack of access to PPE, issues with the quality and the appropriateness of the PPE that people were getting. So, you know, we've heard a lot of commentary around uh, healthcare workers getting quote unquote appropriate PPE. Um, the healthcare workers are telling a completely different story. So an example would be, for example, a paramedic who is wearing a gown that's billowing in the wind or a uh, nurse at a COVID screening clinic who is wearing a face shield that is flapping up and down on her face as she's, you know, trying to swab someone in a car. Michelle, why do you uh, think this has happened to the extent that it's happened this time around in Melbourne? We're in a second wave in Melbourne now. So to some extent, the state knew what was coming. They did have some time to prepare between the first and second waves. Why are we seeing this happening in Victoria and who is responsible here? I think complacency had set in. So we got off pretty lightly with, you know, the first wave. Yes, people died and yes, there were outbreaks, but there was a lot of backslapping, a lot of patting each other on the shoulder saying, oh, well, you know, we did really well. And the things that I think were concerning with the first wave was that we were still getting hospital outbreaks in the first wave. 
Okay, there were outbreaks that occurred in Melbourne hospitals. There was a Tassie hospital that was actually shut down completely because of an outbreak. So, you know, at that time, red flags, alarm bells should have been uh, ringing, right? That there was transmission, there was a potential for significant outbreaks, even when community transmission was low. But instead, what we saw was people just, you know, said, you know, high-fived each other saying, oh, well, we've done really well. Our PPE, our processes are, you know, they're top-notch. And so there was really no incentive to try harder. And when we got hit with the second wave, what we saw was, you know, the cracks appearing in an entire system. Michelle, that's a pretty damning assessment and a fair one. What needs to change? What needs to happen right now? If I was going to say anything, I would say start listening to the people who are actually doing the work, not the middle managers, but the people on the front line. They know what the problems are. They know what the barriers are and they actually have the solutions as well. All you have to do is talk to them. What clearly emerged in the stories was the frustration felt by healthcare workers that any of their suggestions, their concerns were essentially being suppressed or dismissed. All right. And that means that there is a really poor culture in our workplaces and healthcare workers, as a result, don't feel safe to speak up. And what happens when you suppress the concerns and the fears of healthcare workers is that you end up with outbreaks. Dr. Michelle Ananda Raja there. She is one of 17 doctors who've written to the Federal Health Minister, Greg Hunt, basically saying that frontline workers are being left out of the conversation and that needs to change. And I feel like that was the resounding takeaway for me, Jam, that there needs to be this space for workers to be able to come out and to talk about these issues so that we recognise exactly what's going on. I think that's right. Emily spoke about stigma. She spoke about being a nurse with COVID and feeling kind of ashamed, Mm. like she did something wrong almost. And then we hear from Michelle, who's suggesting to us that Victorian healthcare workers are being made to feel like they shouldn't say something Mm. about the unsafe working conditions they're in. And we've got these government bureaucratic organisations making calls when they don't necessarily know what it's like in the ground, in the hospitals for these nurses and doctors who are working with COVID patients every day. Yeah, I think that's a really great point. Listen to frontline workers. All right, that is it for the briefing today. On Monday, we've got former PM Kevin Rudd chatting to us about what it's like to be a leader in times of crisis. That is Monday's show. Thank you so much for joining us. Make sure you subscribe. Make sure you tell your friends. Make sure you slide into our DMs on social media. We'd love to hear from you. Catch you soon. Bye. A Podcast One production.